Well, as we begin our last uh, hour on the instruction, let's uh, ask God's blessing again, please. Almighty Father, we thank you that you are our covenant, God. We thank you that you've given us a covenant where everything has been provided for us for life and godliness. We pray that you would help us to walk in your ways, in fellowship with you, in league with you, O Lord, through this great covenant of grace, this new covenant given to us as a free gift, that we may in gratitude walk with you and grow in that image of Christ that you have set before us of love and in good works and in righteousness before you, our holy God. Please guide our thoughts, O Lord, this morning to glorify you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, if you'll take your blue books out, please, and uh, put your name and box number on them. We'll be having our quiz now. (laughs) Question. Are works required to be in covenant with God? So you can work your way to be in covenant with God? No. Oh, all right, you can't. All right. What distinguishes the covenant of works from the covenant of grace? What's the, the central distinguishing characteristic? The covenant of works. Personal obedience. Perfect pers- personal, perfect, perpetual obedience. Absolutely. Is there any provision in the covenant of works itself for someone who breaks those terms? No. The covenant of works itself carries no provision for mercy. It carries what instead? Death. It is sanctioned by death as a curse. What about the covenant of grace? What characterizes the covenant of grace? substitution of the works of the responsibility of the of the uh, obedience distinguish a covenant from an administration of the covenant this is a little toughie okay. first define administration what do we mean when we talk about administration of the covenant of grace we in our Catechism and Confession, it talks about there's one overarching covenant of grace given through various administrations. The sacraments are an administration of the covenant. So the sacrament might change, but you still have the substance of the same covenant. How can we know that we have the same covenant with God throughout all of Scripture? What is that particular blessing of the covenant that is expressed throughout scripture I will be your God and you will and the God of your seed after you and you will be my people you see that's a central expression of the blessing of being in covenant with God another way to say it is we have him himself so what makes the new covenant new if it has all these old things in common with it. Fulfillment. In a sense, our 15-minute discussion of the New Covenant last night, I hope you noticed that that was awfully abbreviated, and I didn't mean that, of course. But in a sense, we've been studying the New Covenant all along, haven't we? Really, we we can understand the New Covenant better when we see the Old Covenant moving toward it. And I believe that this is a very important structural characteristic of the Scripture. God was up to something from the beginning. And what he was up to finds its fulfillment in the coming of Christ in the New Covenant. So you can look back at the earlier administrations of the Covenant of Grace and understand the New Covenant in that way. And this is how I started out, isn't it? I mentioned that In the New Testament itself, and again, the word testament, it means covenant. In the New Testament itself, the word covenant appears only 33 times, not very often at all. But in part, I believe, it's because it's assumed. It's it's a covenant document. The whole thing is covenantal. 
because God has paved the way to, for us to be thinking covenant so that when he revealed his son, we would understand him as the fulfillment of all of those covenant administrations previous. Okay. Hey, you did pretty well. Should it be A or A minus? I'd give you an A. Pretty good. Well, let me read to you another quote. This is from Thomas Watson again, A Body of Divinity. He wrote a uh, Body of Divinity. It's a, really a, a kind of uh, systematics organized, organized around the Shorter Catechism, originally published in 1692, but it's a covenant theology in, in essence. But he, in uh, describing the differences between the Adamic covenant and the New Covenant, he says this, but are not works required in the covenant of grace? Yes. This is a faithful saying, or excuse me, quote, this is a faithful saying that they which believe in God be careful to maintain good works, Titus 3.8. But the covenant of grace does not require works in the same manner as the covenant of works did. In the first covenant, works were required as a condition of life. In the second they are required only as the signs of life. In the first covenant, works are required as grounds of salvation. In the new covenant, they are required as evidences of our love to God. In the first, they are required to, to the justification of our persons. In the new, to the manifestation of our grace. And I think this is a, a really a, a marvelous little paragraph to describe the dynamic of the Christian life and how works still are required of us in the new covenant. God does require of us a condition for the new covenant. And part of that condition of us is what I call living faith. And I, I usually use that adjective living with faith so that you don't think of it as bare faith like James 2 faith that does no works, faith which is not alive, faith which is mere profession, but is empty of the Spirit, is empty of genuine trust and obedience and of renovation of life that the Spirit works in us and we in faith uh, walk in sanctification and newness of life. So living faith is, is that kind of faith which brings forth as fruit good works. If you love me, keep my commandments our covenant Lord says. And they are required in a sense. But he, he very well expresses that good works are required in a different way than under the covenant of works. So you can really see that in coven covenanting with God, there is really some similarity between the covenant of works and covenant of grace, isn't there? There is still a condition there's still a threat for the one who merely professes faith and yet in their life they, they prove that their faith is empty and a sham and they are hypocrites and apostate. Of course, it is worse for them than if they'd never professed Christ to begin with and entered into covenant with God. Then all the curses of the covenant with God fall upon them more heavily. This, of course, is what the book of Revelation, which, by the way, is, is a very much a covenant document. The book of Revelation has covenant throughout it, if you're attuned to these elements of covenant. It ends with pronouncing curses, and these are covenant curses falling upon the world. But he says, the one who hears these words and does not obey, those curses fall upon them. Now, there, however, there's one aspect of the role of works in the New Covenant that, I, that he is missing, and I'd like you to think about that. Can you, uh, do you know what I have in mind? Notice, he says, what is the difference between the covenant of works and covenant of grace? And he zeroes in on how covenants work for the individual, excuse me, how works uh, function for the individual in the covenant of works and then in the covenant of grace. But there's something missing here. 
Christ's work, absolutely. You see, he, and he may have it elsewhere, it's just right here he doesn't bring it in, but I think you have to bring it in, that the work required by God in the covenant of works is fulfilled by Christ in the covenant of grace. So Christ did fulfill the Adamic covenant of works, and this is why we think it's republished in the Mosaic covenant, because it is more expressly published in the Mosaic covenant, remember, only in that typological realm, but those are the works that Christ fulfilled, the covenant works required by God of pure, utter holiness, perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, you see. He fulfilled it. And not only that, but he himself in one person suffered the curse of the covenant that was due to us, that we might be now find mercy, but covenant mercy, that commitment to us. So you have to, you see now why the covenant of grace is such a complex phenomenon, really, and full of, of really the ability to integrate so much biblical teaching. You see, covenant for us, as I mentioned, is an organizing principle of Scripture. You can see how many aspects of Scripture's teachings cohere around covenant. And the beauty of, of being covenant theologians is we're using an organizing principle for understanding all of Scripture together, which comes out of Scripture itself. Covenant is not some artificial concept that we're putting on Scripture. Think about if we were to take an idea, pull one out of the air, democracy, and use that as an organizing principle for understanding Scripture. Well, where is democracy in Scripture? You see, it would be an artificial imposition on Scripture. Whereas covenant, you see, is a biblical principle that God himself uses to organize his revelation. This is why it's curious when we're charged with using covenant artificially to you know, impose on Scripture. And what people mean by that when they accuse us of doing that is we read covenant in places in Scripture where the word doesn't appear. And that's, you know, that's why they don't understand what we're doing. But I would say the word doesn't appear. Um, but if the concept is there and the things related to the concept then it doesn't really matter if the word's there or not. And I can demonstrate that from many scriptures that uh, the Lord and the apostles do that absolutely all the time. So it's a biblical procedure to do that. Well, you passed your test, but I just wanted to review those things on the New Covenant in particular so that we would understand that continuity, but also just to review what we've been doing. These, you, as you can see throughout, I've just been trying to bring up these basic areas to really to stimulate your thinking. If you'd like to uh, read more in the Covenant, we have, of course, the books recommended, but I could also recommend to you the book of Hebrews. Uh, reread Galatians 3. Wouldn't hurt to, do, to read Revelation. You'll find the word covenant a few times, but you'll find the uh, uh, you'll find that this is the covenant Lord speaking, and he uses actually prophetic forms. Just one thing in particular. Let me just throw this out. A couple of things actually. Um, in my understanding of Revelation chapters two and three, the so-called letters of Revelation. When you read those letters to the seven churches, they don't have letter form. Greek letters of the time have a very particular form which the Pauline epistles follow generally. But the so-called letters in Revelation 2 and 3 don't have letter format. Instead, when you look at them carefully, you will find Old Testament prophetic patterns. You'll find that the prophets were covenant lawyers. God bringing a charge against his covenant people the Lord charging them with disobedience to the covenant and either warning them of imminent judgment or calling them to repentance. But he actually uses the ter term lawsuit in Hebrew in the Old Testament and some of the prophets. Well, 
this same form is really what the so-called letters are in the seven letters. Not all of them, two of them don't have any charges. But if you work through them, there's the history of the Lord's dealing with his people. There's a charge of disobedience to the, to, to the covenant Lord. There's a call for repentance. And there's a threat of punishment if they don't repent. In most of them, not all of them. And then, of course, in the center one. It's all arranged very carefully. But in the middle one to Thyatira, it's actually a double charge. But it's moved beyond uh, charging anymore and warning. It's just an announcement of imminent judgment. So you can actually see those as John, the covenant lawyer, prophet. And by the way, the book of Revelation, John says over and over, this is prophecy. This is, this is prophecy like Old Testament prophecy. Uh, that he is, as the covenant representative of the Lord, he's bringing a charge against his people. And it's called a lawsuit. Well, another place you can see it is in um, Revelation 7. Sometimes in Scripture, to understand a passage, sometimes this is, is uh, done. You can look at Revelation 7, 9. Sometimes the meaning of a passage is by noting just a particular little part of a sentence and saying, what in the world is that doing there? Particularly if you have a condensed narrative, one where there's really not a lot of words in the, in the uh, passage. It's a condensed narrative. And usually when that happens, they're saying something very condensed where every phrase has some meaning. In Revelation uh, 7, verse 9, we read this, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues. Notice there's always four, nation, tribes, peoples, and tongues, because of the four corners of the earth. Standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches were in their hands, and they cry out with a loud voice saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And then it goes on. And the question that should strike us is, what? what? I mean, what question arises in your mind now? What detail in this little sentence is, you know, has to be explained? Well, the palm branches. I mean, this isn't just describing uh, something for its own sake. He, he certainly could have described more of this vision that he saw. There may have been other aspects of the vision he could have described, but John chose to describe this aspect of his vision. The palm branches, why? What's, what's the significance of the palm branches? Alan? Yep, and the yep. There's one other place where palms occur. You, you, you know, you may want to study what what you can do. Then is just start studying palm branches through your concordances. What was the feast of booths? Palm branches, and actually that was connected to that. They were cutting palms to, and they had them to lay at the feet of the Lord. But what's the Feast of Booths about? It's also called Tabernacles. It's an annual feast that the people of God were to celebrate and they were to live in these tents made out, well, sort of tents, these huts made out of palm branches to do what? To remember their wilderness wandering and the fact that the Lord had brought them out of Egypt and brought them through the desert to the Promised Land. So here, who are these people? A great multitude whom no one can count. And when you hear that, you think the Abrahamic promise. So here is the Abrahamic promise reaching its fulfillment. And the exodus has been, you know, the exodus out of this world has been fulfilled. And they are entering into the promised land, you see. 
and the palms are in their hand in celebration of that great exodus. They no longer are in the wilderness. And of course, you know, that wilderness motif appears again and again throughout the book of Revelation. So, these are the kinds of things where you connect with the Old Testament and you see the continuity. But this is the covenant people and those promises reaching their fulfillment uh, that were given even to Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant. From you all the families of the world will be blessed. All the families of the world. And so here we find the fulfillment of that. Okay, well there's a lot more here. All right. Well, before we get into the sacraments, I just want to say it's bungee cord that works best. <laughs> I know you were wondering. Uh, I tried it. In this way, he can wiggle around without hurting himself, you see. <laughs> All right. I got that out of the way. Because I know that's really why you came this morning. You wanted to find out. Well, I have a sacrament together here in the next half hour or so. So we're not going to do everything on the sacraments, obviously. But I'd like to look at a few things, perhaps focusing really on some things you hadn't thought of before. Um, oh, somebody mentioned I didn't really talk about the Davidic covenant. And you're right, I didn't. So back to the sacraments. <laughs> no, the Davidic covenant, as you know, is purely a promise to David and to his royal seed. And God was narrowing the line of the ruler over his covenant people to the, the seed of David. And that promise is explicitly applied to Christ in Hebrews 1.5, to which of the angels has he ever said? And then he quotes Second uh, Samuel 7. So in a sense, the Davidic covenant is not really an ecclesiastical covenant. And what I mean by that is, it's not directly relating to an administration of something to the church at large. Not directly. But indirectly it is because it is assigning the church's king to be from the line of David. And there is an oath behind it and God has determined this and of course you have this solemnly bound determination to dispose of a kingdom, this is what covenant can be. So it is a Davidic covenant. But it is focused primarily on Christ. It's a Christological covenant, we could say. Yet, when we get to Revelation 21, which I'll end our time with, it's interesting that that covenant promise is given to us through him. Because we now, in the royal seat of David, become a kingdom of kings and priests before our God. So in him, we sit with him on his throne, a phrase coming out of Revelation also, granting the royal Davidic son who receives that promise from David, he is the seed of David consummately. In him, he grants us to sit alongside him on his father's throne. So one thing to note about the... Uh, Davidic covenant is there's no sacrament attached for the people at large and I think this is why I say it's not really ecclesiastical immediately, not directly relating to the church it's not administering some promise or uh, sacramental blessing or some blessing marked with a sacrament for the church at large to practice so it's, it, it's part of the covenant of grace development but focusing really more narrowly on the king of the covenant who would come from the line of David. But then through him, those blessings promised there uh, are shared by Christ with all of his people when he fulfills that promise. So that's really about all there is to say about the Davidic covenant. There may be other things I don't know about. That's about as far as I've gone. Uh, so I'm glad I could tell you that very quickly but I th but the thing to look at at a, at a covenant which is ecclesiastical like the Abrahamic or the Mosaic is look for those sacramental elements which apply to all the church to see it as an administration of the covenant of grace at large well those elements are sacraments 
And as you know, when we discuss the sacraments, we, we begin with the Old Testament. And this is proper. If we've established the unity of the covenant of grace, then the previous revelation of God about the nature of a sacramental sign of the covenant in the old covenant revelation is relevant for the new. If that unity is established, this is why it's proper to speak of the sacraments at this point after you analyze the covenantal unity. Now, there are differences in sacramental administration through the covenants, but really you can see that, that there's also a, a similarity and a continuity, and we'll talk about that now. Now, our catechetical materials give us pretty uh, concise and good description of what a sacrament is. We even had this wonderful song composed, uh, you know, what is a sacrament? that the kids sing. And, and boy, I tell you, having kids learn about sacraments very early like that is really a wonderful blessing, that they can grow up appreciating the means of grace, because, of course, we, we call the sacraments a means of grace alongside the preaching of the word and prayer, but a means of grace, a means of God conveying his grace. So when we look at sacraments, it's a good place to start with uh, the, the most overt one for the church in Genesis 17. I'll ask you to turn there now. It's a passage we read before, but one where we'll look at now with sacraments in mind. Genesis 17, verse 9 and following. Of course, the giving of the sacramental sign of the Abrahamic covenant. Genesis 17, verse 9. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. Now two things to note, and I'm just going to do this, read it, and then make some quick comments. First, God issues the sacramental sign. And this is something brought out in our catechetical materials that it's, an, it's a, an ordinance ordained by Christ. The sacraments of the new covenant are ordinances ordained by Christ. Why, why did they go out of their way to say that in the Westminster Standards? John? Because the Roman church, which as you know was the Western church, and we come out of that church. There is continuity with us in the OPC with the Western Church back to the Apostles, if you want to think of it that way. That is our old church in, in a way. More indirect, but it is our old church. But the Roman Church that we came out of as Protestants in the Reformation era had seven sacraments and had burdened the people of God by saying these were means of grace, and had made them up. And if they are a means of grace, it is God which is conveying grace. Can you force God to convey grace in a new way that he has not commanded? Now you can see how this is tied to the regulative principle of worship. You don't make up your own sacraments because that's an act of worship and God does not condone it, and he does not guarantee that he will act to bless that act, does he? So here, Abraham didn't negotiate this with God, you know, in fact, Abraham was a passive recipient. God himself comes and gives this for the benefit of Abraham and his seed, no doubt. See, this is the wonderful thing about it. God isn't issuing this for his own benefit, really. It's really for our benefit. He, he's kind. He knows us and he knows what we need, and he, pr he provides these things for our benefit. But he does so as a king who has the power to dispose these things, and we can't change that, and to do so is unwise at best. But notice also that this was to be perpetual. This is something perpetual, not just for Abraham individually, 
but it's for a community. God is forming a community of faith based on Abraham and his family. And we didn't get into this, but you could trace God's dealings throughout the Bible and note how often God deals with people and families together. Usually, that's how God acts. So in the New Testament, that pattern is continued. The family of Cornelius, which, by the way, would undoubtedly, the household of Cornelius, undoubtedly have included his slaves and freedmen as a Roman centurion. Undoubtedly. As well as other families like Stephanus in uh, 1 Corinthians. God deals with families and households together. So we see that here as well. Now verse 10. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you. Every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised through your generations. A servant who is born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who is born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall your my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And of course, uh, the great covenant promise is earlier in verse 7. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you through your seed after you. Of course, there's the great uh, benefit of the covenant, the, the real heart of it right there. But look back at verse 10. Notice his way of talking about the sacrament. This is my covenant with you, circumcision. Now, what does that remind you of in the New Testament? This cup is the new covenant in my blood. It's really the same way of speaking. It's a way of speaking of a sacrament to more, most closely identify the sacrament with the thing symbolized. So you can say that you can talk about the covenant sign as embodying the covenant itself. And that's what he, how he speaks of it here. This is my covenant. Circumcision. Put it another way. Circumcision is my covenant with you. Now he does that so that you will see the most intimate tie between the sacramental sign and seal and the covenant itself, what it communicates. So that to reject the covenantal sign and seal is an act of unbelief, in effect, rejecting the covenant itself. Now people do it for various reasons. Some of them do it in ignorance. And God, being patient and kind, doesn't immediately judge them for that. And neither should we. But we have to instruct our families and our churches that the uh, covenantal signs and seals, the sacraments, God takes very seriously as identifying with what all that that covenant embodies. And in the new covenant, it is Christ. This is why Paul talks about if you were baptized into Christ, you have put on Christ. You see, if you've, if you've received the sign and seal and in faith appropriated what that means, you have all that that covenant embodies, namely Christ and all that he represents. So that's how he speaks of the covenant sign and seal here. Notice in verse 11, he uses that word, it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He gives it so that it will symbolize that covenant bond that exists between God and his people. That bond, you know, is expressed, I am your God and you are my people. So it's like a marriage ring. You could really think of a marriage ring as a kind of sacrament, although it, of course, is not a biblical sacrament, but it has the same kind of symbolic characteristic. It is a, it is a sign of the bond between two people. So it is appropriate to think by analogy, of course, of uh, 
circumcision at this place is like a marriage ring with God. It, it symbolizes that bond. But it is a sign of the covenant. Now this is the language that's picked up in, by Paul in Romans when he interprets this. And he interprets it in a way very succinctly and yet in a way which we really do need to unpack. So I'll ask you to turn now to Romans 4.11. So when you're thinking about a sacrament in general, we, we call sacraments in general sign and seal of the covenant of grace. And this is where we derive those concepts. We get the idea of sign right, up, right there in Genesis 17, as well as in Romans 4, 9 and following. Some people have wondered about the very curious translation I'm reading from here. It's the BUV. And I don't know if many of you have bought that yet. I don't think it's on the bookstore. The Ba unauthorized version. <laughs> no one has authorized it, believe me. Nor would they. <laughs> okay. Verse 9. Now, Paul has been talking about how receiving circumcision itself apart from faith, is of no value. That faith is the real heart of the blessing. And it's not by law-keeping that Abraham believed and received justification. And in fact, Paul is going to argue that Abraham was an uncircumcised Gentile when he was justified, so that he might be the father both of the Gentiles as well as of the Jews who were circumcised. It's a wonderful argument. For this blessing, verse 9, this blessing was that when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised that Abraham received this blessing. For we say that faith, or even his faith, was reckoned to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it reckoned? Was it when he was circumcised or when he was uncircumcised? Well, it wasn't when he was circumcised, but uncircumcised. When Paul repeats himself like this, he's, he's almost saying, okay, I'm going to walk you through it in sort of baby steps. You know, Paul doesn't do that often with us. He usually leaps uh, along the mountaintops and we have to follow as we can. Okay, but here in verse 11 now is the focus. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of that faith that he had when he was uncircumcised in order that he might be the father of all those who believe whether they are uncircumcised or not that's what it should say but of all those who believe in uncircumcision as well of course focusing on the Gentiles because righteous, so that righteousness is reckoned to them as well as well as the father of the circumcision verse 12 but really, I want to focus on that phrase, he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of that faith he had when he was uncircumcised. Now, think about what Paul is saying here, and it's very profound. It is, of course, the language we use, but it's worth unpacking. First of all, what does a sign do? Well, it points to something else. It doesn't point to itself, but it points to something else. So, so Paul derives this, this language of sign of circumcision right there out of Genesis 17, verse 11. God himself calls it, this is a sign. But what is it a sign of in Genesis 17, 11? The phrase is, this is a sign of the covenant between me and you. So it is in particular a sign of the covenant. Paul doesn't use the term covenant, but that's what he's doing is exegeting that passage, really. And you have to read that in, I believe. This is why we're not reading covenant under every rock. We're simply tracing the apostle's thoughts back to a passage and understanding that he's simply telling us something about that passage, but, but he knows we've read the whole thing and understand it's a sign of the covenant, of that covenant bond between Adam, uh, excuse me, Abraham and God. 
So he received this sign of circumcision. So circumcision was a sign, and it pointed to the bond between God and Abraham and his descendants. And it was to be administered to his seed after him as a perpetual sacramental sign. But it's more than just a sign. It is a seal of the righteousness of his faith, which he had when he was uncircumcised. Because, of course, Abraham was justified earlier in chapter 15. And we're reading chapter 17 of Genesis. He had already been justified. He'd already exercised his faith and and, and professed his faith before the Lord and received a confirmation that he was justified by his faith. So that when he received circumcision, that did not give him justification, is what Paul's arguing. It, it is a, a seal of the righteousness of faith. Now notice what Paul doesn't say. This again is important when you're exegeting scripture to think about what does he not say that you may think he's saying? Well, he doesn't say it's a sign of his faith. Notice that the focus of attention here is not now on Abraham's faith. It's a seal of what? The righteousness of faith. And that righteousness is given to Abraham as a gift. Now, what does a seal do? And I'll answer that question. It's, it's a seal like a signet ring of a king authenticating a royal document. This is my document. Now the document carries the seal which says this is an official document. This is a royal document that carries my authority. I authenticate. That's another term for seal. Sealing is to authenticate something. It, this, the verb connected with his noun here, seal, has that weight in the Gospels. Jesus says, the Father himself authenticates me, seals me. And this is what, what it does here, you see. But notice, who's doing the authentication? And this is really the main thing I want to tell you this morning. God. God is doing the authentication. God is setting his seal of the righteousness of faith upon the one circumcised. Even all the children of Abraham, those who come to faith and those who don't, those who will profess Abraham's faith and those who will betray it and sell their birthright. But they can only sell their birthright if it's theirs to begin with. And God has set his seal on them and said, You are mine. Now walk in my ways. Now come to living faith. You see, express living faith. But you see, this is what's happening in a sacrament. Is God is acting, authenticating this child, turning now to Abraham's children, this child is a child of the covenant. So that language we saw elsewhere in Scripture you are sons of the covenant. Now you know why that's true. They are sons of the covenant. Even the unbelieving ones have an inheritance in the covenant by right of birth and by right of receiving the sacramental sealing of God, authenticating them as heirs of the righteousness according to faith. And of course, everything I've just said is immediately applied to baptism, isn't it? Immediately because baptism simply replaces circumcision as the initiation sacrament of the new covenant. It's administered in a new way, but everything said about baptism in the scripture conforms to exactly these things we've spoken of about circumcision. Now, to demonstrate that it takes more time than we have, but I, I'm not sure that's controversial and I need to, but you can see now why we understand baptism more fully than others. Let me, let me read you a quote. This is from a uh, statement of faith by the Southern Baptist Convention. Now listen how they understand Christian baptism. 
Christian baptism is the immersion of a believer in water. It is an act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith. It is a testimony to his faith. Now, there's more to the quote, but that's the, the heart of it. Now, what, is, what do you hear in that message? It is a testimony to his faith, act of obedience symbolizing the believer's faith. Who is acting in this Christian baptism? Only the believer. The believer is, is symbolizing and sacramentalizing only his faith, and God is absent. It's really a testimony before God, trying to persuade God, perhaps. Maybe that's overstating it, but testifying to God that we really do believe. Now, I'd like you to read this verse, Romans 4.11, in this way. Now, Abraham received a sign of his faith, a seal of the faith he had when he was uncircumcised. But But Paul doesn't say that, does he? You see, the sealing here is not of Abraham's faith. It's the righteousness he received from God by faith. That's what God was authenticating. Abraham, we have a covenant. Here is the external sign so that you might know that I have justified you. I have given you as a free gift and authenticated with this sacramental sign and seal the righteousness which comes from your faith. Now, faith enters in as a requirement of the covenant. I mean, we've, we've established that already. And baptized children must come to faith if they, if they grow up. We won't talk about you know, other cases now, but the children who die in infancy were baptized. But this, you see, this is the requirement, is faith. But the main point is God is operating here. It's, it's God's activity, which is most important. And by the way, for the children who do die in infancy, that's our hope and also our assurance from Scripture elsewhere that they have been received by our Heavenly Father as his children. Maybe, I don't know if you've heard that before, but this don't have enough time to explain that all. But I would like you to think that when we participate in the sacraments, that we are not alone acting. I'd like you to meditate on what God is doing in the sacraments. And I think this will be much more edifying for us than thinking about what we're doing. Now, the wonderful thing about the covenant theology and, and you know, our early theologians accented this that we're both active in the sacraments God and us it's an expression of the mutuality of the covenant we are in bond with God and he with us so we are both active in participating in the sacraments but I've accented God's participation simply because of our climate in our climate you know, and me growing up, and I'm sure many of you as well, the focus of attention has been on what we're doing in the sacraments. And I'd like you to just reach a better balance by thinking of also what God is doing in these covenant signs, because he is setting his seal on Abraham through circumcision and also upon us in baptism. But one final note also Notice in that statement about baptism, if it is only, from the Southern Baptist Convention, if it is only the believer's faith involved, then in a sense, the sacrament back in the days of Abraham is not directly connected to Christ's righteousness. And let me, let me put it another way. In their conception, or at least in some of their conceptions, you know, I, I can't speak for them all, but I, I know that in some of their portrayals of the Old Testament sacrament, particularly of circumcision, they think of circumcision as only what Abraham was doing, 
But it was a ceremony demanded of Abraham, and it had no real spiritual significance in itself. And they, they treat it as a, 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 an em, really an empty ceremony which can be discarded once the New Covenant era has begun. But look how Paul interprets circumcision for Abraham. Circumcision was a seal of the righteousness of faith. And if you trace out Paul's argument in Romans, that's the righteousness revealed in Christ. Abraham was in contact with the righteousness of Christ that he would do through circumcision. God authenticating that he was an heir of the righteousness of Christ and of all the benefits of the new covenant. Abraham at that time. So that was not merely an empty ceremony. Abraham participated in a very spiritual ceremony that could only have been uh, activated by the operation of the Holy Spirit attending that sacrament of circumcision. This is why the call comes to circumcise their hearts. It was a spiritual act of faith. And then the external sign was part of that whole phenomenon. So Paul says, no, I mean, it was a spiritual thing. And this is, this is really interesting, isn't it? Here, here Paul is arguing at length that the Gentiles don't have to receive circumcision. So you would expect him to say, oh, they don't have to receive circumcision because it's just an empty ceremony, always has been, it's nothing. But he doesn't. He says, no, it was valuable in his day. It was valuable as a sign and seal of the righteousness of faith for believing Abraham. All Paul is doing is saying, but you know, it is empty if there's not attended by faith. In the end, it doesn't do anybody any value if you make it an empty ceremony. But it is interesting how Paul, in this passage, he seems to be just uh, dismissing circumcision but it's interesting how in Romans 6 he, he, he gives such a high place for baptism. You've been, you've been baptized into Christ in Romans 6 in many places. You've identified with Christ in his, uh, cru- in his uh, crucifixion, in his burial, in his resurrection. And Christian baptism puts you in union with Christ. So Paul is not speaking against sacraments. This is the point. Paul isn't denigrating sacraments as valuable covenant signs and seals. He's just saying, apart from faith, they are of no value. But, but then, when he speaks of, of baptism, he gives us the highest place and he expresses the most important central truths of Christianity through baptism. Well, just an observation. It just struck me, you know. Because Paul could have said, yeah, you know, circumcision, that's, that's the old stuff. And baptism, yeah, it is optional, you know. We, I don't want to even use that term. Don? Given this uh, important spiritual significance of circumcision as a sign and seal of righteousness through faith, what uh, do you think are we to make of the The question is, if, if circumcision is a spiritual sign and seal, why does Ishmael include it in the uh, original commandment? Well, I know you have the answer, and you can tell us. I mean, it would save me a lot of time. But. <laughs> it is, of course, because Ishmael was a member of his household, and the, the sign and seal is given to the whole household because God deals with households, I believe all of the dependence. And this is just a part of, of the beneficence of God extending grace, as it were, to members of the household. And he deals with households uh, consistently throughout Scripture in this way. 
And I, I haven't thought about it in these terms enough to know with great confidence, but isn't it also in part a, re, a, a reflection of the, the covenant headship of Adam and all of his household, as well as of Christ in all of his household, that by the righteousness of the one, the many receive the benefits. Now, it's not a guarantee of election and eternal life for Ishmael to receive the covenant sign and seal. And Paul is making that point as well. But it's not a bare ceremony either. It is a real authentication of God claiming and laying claims and the obligation of this covenant on that person. And the obligation of the covenant of grace is living faith. Pastor Warren. Yeah. not the wife to be baptized. So the question is, I have to summarize this for the tape, Pastor, so you're... Uh, <laughs> means I have to remember everything you said, which is on the basis of the holiness of the children and the consecration of the uh, unbelieving spouse in 1 Corinthians 7, why shouldn't the unbelieving spouse also receive Christian baptism? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Well, I'd like to give that more thought. So maybe you'll invite me back to Family Cab next year to <laughs> just answer that one question, and I'll sit down. <laughs> now there is, of course, there is, of course, development in the covenant and in the covenant administration. There is a certain increase of spirituality in the new covenant sacraments. I don't think it's as extensive and massive as our Baptist brethren think, of course. But there is this clarity that faith is required. And if someone consciously rejects faith in Christ as an adult, we can't baptize them for that reason. And I think it's just a conflicting principle. Now, if you have a better answer than that, I'd be glad to receive it. All I could add to the discussion to uh, perhaps help, it has been asserted that those two phrases that the uh, verse 14, 1 Corinthians 7:14, for the unbelieving husband is sanctified in his wife. That's the, the verb, hagiazo. And then the uh, adjective form of that word is used to the children. They are hagias. You can hear the similarity. Hagias is the adjective, holy. And then hagiazo is said of the unbelieving spouse. But my study of those two things is they really are used differently by Paul. In the first one, you have to note two things. The, unbe the unbelieving spouse is hagiazo in 
the brother or sister. This is an important uh, qualification because elsewhere, the Christian is hagiazo, uh, sanctified in the Lord. That's always the phrase used, or sanctified by the Lord. But this unbelieving spouse is sanctified in the unbelieving spouse, not in the Lord. So this unbelieving spouse is not in the Lord. And that would be a basis of not baptizing them. They're not in the Lord. They're not in the covenant confines because they've rejected it. The, um, and, it's, and Paul signals that by saying they are consecrated. I'd prefer to translate it that way because it means they are consecrated for holy purpose. The focus of that verb form is the purpose of the consecration. We use that of in the Old Testament as well as in the New, as well as by Paul. He uses that of food that had been consecrated to holy use. So the focus there is on what use are they put to by the Lord that makes them useful. And it's a temple imagery. You consecrate a certain basin to use to carry uh, something sacred into the temple. So it's been consecrated for holy use. But it doesn't mean they've received the sanctification of their hearts for that it comes from faith. That's a different kind of consecration with a different purpose. But the children, of course, are hagias. This is, this is their status before the Lord. They are covenant members by virtue of being children of, of the believer. And it is interesting, he doesn't say what kind of children, how old they are. I believe that he leaves that to our judgment. Now, if you have something better to contribute, I'm, I'm all ears on that. Yeah. 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 Well, I think right now I'm right <laughs> in what I said, <laughs> that, there are, that faith is required of adults and they aren't, they aren't said to be in the covenant here. And I think this sanctified in the, in the believing spouse really means for the purposes of marriage to fulfill that purpose. Yes, in the sense that you have to be in the covenant. I mean, you're not you're not hagios. Well, that's another question. I, I'm, let me finish my thought on this one. It takes me long enough to generate a thought that I want to finish it here. Uh, <laughs> this is Friday, folks. You know. The um, when I've emphasized the continuity, it is with an awareness that I'm not saying everything there is to say about the qualifications in that continuity. And to do a full job, we really have to describe the continuity of the sacramental signs and seals and also alert us to the discontinuity. There is some, and this would be one of them. And it doesn't yield a black and white picture in the end, but I don't think the biblical phenomenon allows us a black and white picture where we can... You know, we can know in every circumstance without looking at other scriptures and combining them to decide on an issue like that. That's that's how I would proceed. Uh, are you yeah, Don. That Paul might have received baptism to some members of the church in Jerusalem? Yes. I would believe if they rejected the Lord. But it depends on the on the individual. But I don't know. I mean, this is there's some un, unknown questions there about who they were and how old they were, their status and such. But there is a uh, there is still a sense in which the continuity would suggest that he baptized all those members. Yeah. Well, I, I've already said aha to him a couple of times, so. 
Maybe after enough ahas, we'll come to a better systematic description. I, you're asking me the application of these principles to all to you know difficult applications. I don't have all the answers on that. Uh, you know, standing here at one foot, I haven't thought through them all. Maybe you have. You deal more more uh, more with those as pastors than I do. Yet I've thought about some of these things. The main point is, though, when, when the biblical phenomenon says the household of the Philippian jailer, the original reader would have thought everyone in it. It was standard in that culture for the religion of the father of the household to be the religion of everybody. That, you know, I can demonstrate that from ancient inscriptions and elsewhere. We have an interesting inscription from Asia Minor from a little bit after the New Testament period, but it's, it was thought to be a house cult a voluntary house cult originally. It laid out rules for members of this oikos household who it was thought were coming in voluntarily for this private cult to certain deities. But now, more recent opinion, I think very convincing opinion, is this was an inscription set up by the owner of a large household who had slaves coming in all the time and he was laying down rules for every member of the household. And many of those, by the way, are things like sexual purity, no adultery, and never speaking anything ill against the owner of the house, and etc. In other words, it's an expression of that truth that the owner and the father of a household, his religion was necessarily a religion of everybody in it. And so it would have been natural in that climate for the Philippian jailer's whole household to acceded to baptism and accepted the religion of their, their patron, their father. So maybe that's what was going on. The time is up. We have to break 15 minutes ago. So already have taken 15 minutes break and come back. I always tell students when you're dealing with imperatives, you can't make them past tense, but I keep trying.